Welcome to the IAB Policy Podcast, where we provide expert commentary and analysis on the legal and regulatory developments impacting the digital advertising industry. My name is Alex Propes, and I'm the Vice President of Public Policy for the IAB, based in Washington, D.C. In today's conversation, I get to sit down with Ashley Shively, who is a partner at Holland and Knight based out of their San Francisco office. At Holland and Knight, Ashley focuses on privacy and class action litigation. During our conversation, Ashley and I talk about the more than 50 lawsuits that have been filed under the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA, since the law went into effect in January 2020. Ashley summarizes the key trends that are emerging from these lawsuits and discusses what businesses in the digital advertising space should expect as these cases work through the courts. I hope you enjoy. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Alex. So you and your team at Halden and Knight have recently published a very helpful overview of the first wave of lawsuits that we've seen under the CCPA since the law went into effect in January of this year. And I'm really looking forward to delving into uh, what you said in that article And to start off the conversation around CCPA litigation, could you give us an overview of what CCPA's enforcement provisions say, and specifically, what does the law say regarding private rights of action? Sure. So the CCPA was passed in 2018, and it gave consumers new rights in their personal information that are really the first the first time we've seen that in the US. So there is a right to know what is collected, how their information is used, how it is shared. Uh, Consumers have the right to request a copy of their information and also to request a business delete their information or to not sell their personal information further. So the law also adds a, it allows consumers to sue for certain data breach incidents um, and provides for damages in the amount of $100 to $750 per person per incident. When someone mentions CCPA's private right of action, that's what we're talking about. And so under that provision of the law, consumers can only seek damages when a business has failed in its duty to implement and maintain reasonable security procedures, and that failure has resulted in the unauthorized access, theft, or disclosure of certain categories of non-encrypted or non-redacted personal information. And I think it's important to note that, that not all categories of personal information are covered under the private right of action only certain sensitive categories, such as name with your social security number or with your account number in the security code, for instance. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. And I think when most people think about CCPA, they might know that it has this really broad definition of personal information for some of the provisions right? within the advertising space where many of our listeners are coming from. Uh, they're concerned and facing new challenges as a result of those really broad definitions. But when we talk about this private right of action, uh, it's narrower. It's not necessarily uh, advertising ID and maybe associated fields in all instances where that might be captured uh, under other provisions. Um, But we're talking more about a name and social security information, like you said, or maybe bank account information. Is that all fair to say? Exactly. Under the data breach provision, it is uh, restricted to more traditional types of personal information. And that's so it's a set list that's in the statute that is narrower than all the categories 
that are found in the personal information definition of CCPA. And you mentioned reasonable security procedures and some of the hurdles that you have to go through in order to, to qualify for this private right of action. Are those clear what those concepts mean in this case, or is that still an area where we expect more interpretation and, and a lot of question marks? Yeah, there are some standards that are out there, um, but what is reasonable is really going to depend on what the business is, the level of sophistication and size of that business, and the type of information that the business is holding. So if, you're, if, if a business is collecting, for example, email addresses, that is materially different than collecting social security numbers or bank account information. And the reasonable, uh, the, the standard of what is reasonable would be different for those two scenarios. And so you mentioned the amount of the damages uh, between uh, 100 and $750 per violation. And I guess just for our audience, you know, if you think about a, a breach of 100,000 records of California residents, that could be anywhere from $10 million to $75 million in statutory damages. And I think that leads into my next question quite nicely, which is how does this uh, provision and private right of action and the data breach statute differ from what we've seen in other states? Yeah, good question. So. Plaintiffs in the U.S. have struggled for years to connect the dots between uh, a particular security incident, for example, and, and the subsequent harm, whether that's identity theft or other monetary damages. And this creates a hurdle to establishing Article III standing in federal court and plaintiffs' ability to present viable damages theory. The CCPA is the first generally applicable data breach law in the U.S. to offer statutory damages as an alternative to establishing actual damages. And, and the amount of damages, just like you suggested, is what makes it significant. So uh, if a business has suffered an incident and compromised the information of a million residents, you're looking at potential damages up to $750 million. It's a huge number. I know another concept that has been thrown out there, but isn't always understood is this idea of a cure. Could you talk about what the, the law says around a, a cure period? Sure. So if a consumer is going to seek statutory damages, the law requires that she give notice to the business and an opportunity to cure the violation. In many, in, in many, incidents and what we have seen in many of the cases is that if the information is out there, what, what ability is there to cure? Um, so some of the cases have pled that, that cure is essentially impossible, that you can't put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. Uh, and other cases have just been silent on, on whether they did give that notice and wait 30 days before filing the lawsuit. And I think that was one trend that you highlighted in the study. And I'm curious now to turn to, to other trends that maybe have emerged from the cases so far. Can you give us an overview of how many cases we've seen thus far and, and what are the common themes that are emerging? Yeah, so approximately 50 class actions have been filed so far um, that either directly assert a claim under CCPA or indirectly. And half of those 
are the data breach situation. It's what you would expect. That's what everyone anticipated. And those cases tend to seek statutory damages instead of actual damages. Um, the rest of the cases do not have to do with data breach. And instead, these plaintiffs are bringing claims alleging that businesses violated CCPA's notice provision, for example, by failing to give an adequate disclosure of how the business would use or share personal information, or by not providing the consumer with an opt-out for the sale of information or some other type of violation on the front end, not handling a rights request, for instance. Um, the CCPA's private right of action pretty unambiguously prohibits plaintiffs from bringing individual or class claims for these type of violations. Only the California Attorney General can prosecute businesses' noncompliance with the CCPA's notice, do not sell, failure to fulfill rights request, et cetera. Notwithstanding this bifurcation in enforcement, plaintiffs do seem eager to challenge the scope of the private right of action, and they've brought these claims, uh, about two dozen so far, and, and they're framed either as direct violations of the CCPA or alternatively as, as a violation under California's unfair business practices statute. Okay. Yeah, and that's it's. I think it shows the attractiveness of this private right of action to plaintiffs' attorneys and how they're looking for new avenues and kind of broadening some of the the definitions. Even though, as you highlight, the text of the law seems pretty clear in this regard that the private right of action is limited to this data breach uh, section of the law and um, does not, you know, constitute um, uh, ability to bring private rights of action for other elements of of this law or any other California law for that matter. Um, so. Is that surprising in your view that, that we're seeing this or is that par for the course in, in, in laws like this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's California. It has always been a busy litigation docket. I don't think anybody is surprised by the fact plaintiff's attorneys are willing to test the limits of the private right of action. And, you know, we, there are so many judges in California, you never know. You might get lucky and you might get a judge who uh, goes the other way on this. And so I think unless and until you have a strong body of trial court and appellate decisions that uphold a narrow interpretation of the private right of action, you're going to continue to see plaintiffs and the plaintiff's bar file these type of cases. If nothing else, it's leverage for them. In your report, you highlighted one interesting example uh, with, that involved the Weather Channel. They were kind of using CCPA as this defense or safe harbor, I think is how you framed it. Um, would you be willing to, to give a sentence or two on, on what you saw there? There are one or two instances that we've picked up on where defendants have, in cases that were filed before CCPA went into effect, and the allegations in those type of cases are alleging that defendants should have done more, given greater notice, greater clarity. Um, and we have seen some defendants rely on CCPA once the law went into effect to say that what is being asked of them, the type of notice that plaintiffs uh, or city attorneys are suggesting should have been given, that 
that that would go beyond what CCPA requires. And so CCPA is essentially being raised in these type of cases as a affirmative defense of some sort, uh, as a shield to protect against UCL or other claims that are being brought um, where the remedy would be over disclosure, greater disclosure than what was given. Thanks for that overview. Yeah, setting aside, you know, any specific case, I think it is, you know, you do realize that companies are, you know, facing a lot of pressure to, you know, to kind of keep up with these ever-changing standards. And, you know, this is one state that these companies are operating in uh, within one country. And and so this, the, the um, privacy uh, legal space is just getting very complex. And so, you know, you can understand how companies are saying, you know, what standard do you want us, uh, us to live up to and, and we'll do it. But, uh, but we're facing just so many headwinds here. Uh, it's a, a, a challenging task. Um, so, yeah. you know, Go ahead. I, I was going to say that I think that only becomes more complicated with CPRA, with, with Prop 24 on the ballot this year. And that would rewrite so much of CCPA. And businesses are just starting to get their arms around CCPA. They are, you know, finally sorting out budget changes and shifting priorities because of the pandemic. And starting to hit their stride here and and in four months we're going to be asked to vote on something that could potentially throw out huge pieces uh, of the work that has been done and and come 2023 we would have an entirely new uh, enforcement agency potentially all new regulations uh, and things could look completely different and you know it, it I think it is very frustrating and I am sympathetic to the in-house lawyers who are struggling to deal with this ever-changing uh, ever-changing circumstance and requirements. I probably should know this, but is there any difference in the treatment of the private right of action or, or the data breach section in particular? No, that the the private right of action would stay the same. Uh, I I believe the biggest difference in enforcement is that the 30-day cure period for claims brought by, for administrative enforcement by this new agency, and I guess potentially by the AG, if they brought a civil enforcement action, that would go away. But it would stay for consumer claims seeking statutory damages. It's my recollection of that. And so in terms of next steps, we have a number of these cases now working their way through the courts. What should we anticipate in terms of timeline or, or you know, future headlines? And, and when will companies have a better sense of uh, how, what, you know, the body of law that will develop around CCPA? My expectation, my hope, is that many of these non-breach CCPA claims will be disposed of on motions to dismiss or demurs, as we call it in California State Court. But because of COVID closures and now budget cuts to the courts, it is going to take much longer for these initial motions to be heard. So I, I am following one case that, and they had filed a motion in April in Los Angeles Superior Court, I believe it was, and it is not set for hearing until February of 2021. So that, that case is just sitting on somebody's desk, uh, you know, potentially discovery is going on, expenses are being incurred. 
and, and you can't get a decision on this claim that would seem to be pretty clearly prohibited by the face of the statute. And I know you and the team at Halden and Knight have written on a lot of different aspects of CCPA and, and other privacy laws. Any suggestions for listeners where they can go for more information? Yeah, if you go to hklaw.com, you can search my name and it will connect to the recent articles we've published. There's a link to our data strategy, privacy and security team page, and you can sign up for alerts. Uh, there's a couple of CLE presentations we've done there that are available, things like that. Great. Well, our guest today has been Ashley Shively. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the IAB Policy Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email me at alex at iab.com or follow me on Twitter at Alex Propes. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please tell your friends and colleagues and consider giving us a rating in your podcast app. For more information about IAB, visit iab.com forward slash podcasts. Have a great day.